Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is a called The Only Way to the Only God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 3rd, 2009. Few opinions generate more incredulity than Peter's proclamation from the lectionary this week. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter's declaration echoes the very words of Jesus in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter's uncompromising words in Acts 4.12 not only provoke controversy, they raise an honest question that deserves an honest answer. In his World Christian Encyclopedia 2001, David Barrett identifies 10,000 distinct religions, 150 of which have a million or more followers. And so people wonder, is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is the only way to the only God and that the other 9,999 religions are false? What's a Christian to think? Many people today favor some sort of pluralism. By pluralism, I mean the belief that no one religion can or should claim to be normative for all people, and superior to all other religions. Consistent pluralism demands a radically egalitarian perspective that grants parity and equal validity to all religions. For example, a traditional Japanese saying suggests that despite their outward differences, all religions connect with the same divine reality. According to the saying, although the paths to the summit may differ, from the top one sees the same moon. Or in the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, Lord Krishna proclaims, Whatever path men travel is my path. No matter where they walk, it leads to me. There are two broad types of, re of religious pluralism. In a soft version, it appears in popular culture, the media, entertainment, and everyday conversation with friends, and it's epitomized in the rhetorical question, don't all religions really teach the same thing? Why can't we all just get along? In a hard version of pluralism among academic scholars like John Hick, pluralism argues a sophisticated position in historical, philosophical, and religious treatments of the subject. Both the soft, popular, and the hard, scholarly versions of religious pluralism dismiss the words of Peter and Jesus as, number one, morally repugnant, number two, intellectually untenable, and number three, politically disastrous. John Hick speaks for many people when he writes of traditional Christian views that, quote, only diehards who are blinded by dogmatic spectacles 
can persist in such a sublime bigotry. End quote. Religious pluralism sounds and feels good. It tries to capture the moral high ground, and I've always wanted to believe it. But I don't, because I don't think it's true. Instead, I've come to a number of conclusions that, although they don't solve the problem of religious pluralism, they guide my thinking. Like many of life's biggest and most important questions, we don't attain the clarity and certainty that we wish, but instead we walk a middle path between saying too much or too little. And so here, based upon my book by the title Many Gods, Many Lords, are nine points that I've come to believe about religious pluralism. Number one, some religious views and practices seem clearly false harmful, and even despicable. David Koresh doesn't deserve religious parody with Mother Teresa. Or again, Aztec human sacrifice and Buddhist almsgiving shouldn't expect equal allegiance. Hindu widow burning, female infanticide, phallic worship, or, for example, the mass suicide of 913 people at Jim Jones's People Temple in northern Guyana, all these strike me as badly wrong. These simple observation raise, observations raise a telling point. Pluralism that consistently treats all religions as equally valid comes at the unacceptably high price of endorsing the diabolical as well as the divine. In truth, most people do not and should not believe that, quote, all religions are true, which is to say that they think that consistent pluralism is wrong because some religions are false. Number two, the claim that all religions teach the same thing is silly. This is precisely what the religions do not do. At a general level, of course, you can easily document broad similarities among the religions, such as various renditions of the Golden Rule. But when you drill down and examine the historical and theological particulars of religions, you discover drastic differences. Judaism Christianity and Islam, for example, are all famous for their radical monotheism. They all teach that their religion alone is right about the one true God. But Shinto and many African traditional religions are polytheistic. Theravada Buddhism is non-theistic, and the scientific materialism of a person like Richard Dawkins is atheistic. Two corollaries follow. Number one, it's patronizing in the extreme to say that all religions teach the same thing. To tell a Baha'i, for example, that her beliefs are really no different than those of a Rastafarian. Further, contradictory religious claims like the one I've just mentioned, and we could list many more, might all be false, but they can't all be true. Monotheism and polytheism, for example, can't both be right.
Number three, pluralism acknowledges and tries to solve this problem of conflicting truth claims in two ways. People like John Hick appeal to agnosticism, saying that the, quote, ultimately real, that's capital U, capital R, because the word God, according to Hick, biases the discussion. In other words, the ultimately real, says Hick, is unknown and unknowable, forever hidden beyond the scope of human conception, language, or worship. For Hick, religions are imperfect, cultural, relative, and symbolic expressions of the ultimately real. This sounds nice and modest, but if we apply his criterion to his own religious views of pluralism, how can Hick think to stand outside or above the discussion and claim to know the way things really are? Clearly, Hick does not think his position is just one imperfect one among others. He thinks that he's right. He wants to persuade us of that, and even convert us to his own opinion. Furthermore, why does Hick argue that all religions are true? Why not argue that they are all false? If the appeal to agnosticism remains consistent, you can't confidently claim to know anything about ultimate religious reality. A second strategy identifies a common essence in all religion. In other words, some lowest common denominator that we find in all of them. But this tends toward a very subjective interpretation. It stumbles upon the point I just made, and it distorts how adherents understand their own religious traditions. Number four, Christians don't need to reject everything about other religions. They acknowledge areas of both agreement and disagreement, and they struggle over the latter. In most areas of human knowledge, when you encounter contradictory views, you don't throw up your hands and concede they're both true. No, you study hard, make an informed choice, then remain open to further insight. Notice, too, how this Christian view is far more tolerant and liberal than atheism. Whereas pluralism claims all religions are true, atheism claims that all religions are false. Christians reject both of those extreme positions in favor of a middle ground. Number five, the conundrum of relating David Barrett's 10,000 religions to each other is not a Christian problem per se, but rather it's an equal opportunity problem that confronts every religion and every person. Dismissing the Christian approach as wrong-headed, which in fairness is one option, does not solve the problem or make it go away. The problem stays, and it awaits an alternative view from atheists, Jews, Muslims, Zoroastrians, and all the other 9,995 religions that Barrett identifies. Nor do we have infinite alternatives. 
We all operate with limited options, or we must play with the same deck of cards. By and large, Christians do as adequate a job at addressing this thorny issue as believers from other traditions. Number six, I agree with the liberal Jewish writer Michael Kinsley that it's not wrong or intolerant to try to convert other people. If you think that someone is wrong on an issue, it's entirely reasonable to try to change their mind. Christians should vigorously protect and promote the right of every person to hold any faith or no faith at all and extend every individual and culture unfailing courtesy and kindness. We should never prohibit, hinder, manipulate, or, or coerce the beliefs of others. But that doesn't mean you can't conclude that someone's beliefs might be false and consequently try to persuade them of your understanding of what's true. Pluralists like Hick wrongly imply that you can't disagree with a person or try to convert them and still be nice to them. Number seven, <clears throat> a rule of thumb in Bible interpretation is to understand the complex and ambiguous parts of Scripture in light of simple and straightforward passages. And so, for Christians, it's unthinkable that God will treat any person of any time, place, or religion unfairly. Christians are unqualified optimists when it comes to the character of God. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand, but I have absolute confidence that God will treat every person with perfect love and justice. Number eight, instead of discarding what you don't like in Scripture and ending up with a Bible that reflects all your own biases, which is what Thomas Jefferson did, Christians should hold together two broad themes. First, we know that God desires that no person should perish, that every person be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 2 Peter 3.9 Christ is the atoning sacrifice not only for Christians, but for the entire cosmos. 1 John 2, verse 2 And Peter anticipates the universal restoration of all things. Acts 3, verse 21 Secondly, Christ alone is God's ultimate means of salvation. Which brings us to Peter's words in the lectionary this week in Acts 4.12 and Jesus' words in John 14.6. Exactly how the universal love of God and the particularity of Jesus fit together is not entirely clear. I like the view of the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who in his book Mere Christianity wrote, quote, Here's another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is God has not told us what his arrangements about other people are. We do know that no person can be saved except through Christ. 
We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. And number nine, finally, a long time ago, I admitted the many limitations of my knowledge. St. Augustine advised that we should do our best to seek answers to difficult questions, and once we've done that, to, quote, rest patiently in unknowing, end quote. At the end of the day, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, such as the many questions about religious pluralism, but instead the parts of the Bible that I do understand, like loving God with my whole heart and loving my neighbor as myself. For books this week, I review Brad Gooch, the title of the book, Flannery, A Life of Flannery O'Connor, New York, Little Brown and Company, 2009, 448 pages. Mary Flannery O'Connor, 1925 to 1964, published only two novels. In 1952, Wise Blood, and then in 1960, The Violent Bear It Away. And in addition, two collections of short stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find in 1955, and then the posthumous Everything That Rises Must Converge in 1965. And yet, that output was more than enough for Flannery O'Connor's short life to cast a long shadow across the literary landscape. As Gooch shows, evidenced by the 195 doctoral dissertations and 70 book-length studies of her work, Gooch has written the first major biography of Flannery O'Connor since she died, adding to her fund of knowledge from letters that were newly released in 2007 and countless interviews with her friends, classmates, colleagues, publishers, and critics. Flannery O'Connor cut an odd figure. From her earliest years as an only child, she was always socially awkward, deeply introverted, and colorfully eccentric. She laced her coffee with coke, enjoyed racist jokes, never married, and collected exotic birds. A deeply pious Catholic, she lived in the Baptist South. When she entered college, she intended to be a political cartoonist, but found her calling at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And after leaving Georgia for Iowa, New York City, and Connecticut, her diagnosis of lupus at the age of 26, the same disease that killed her father when he was only 45, returned O'Connor back to isolation on the 550-acre working dairy farm in rural Georgia run by her widowed mother, and from which isolation she wrote powerfully disturbing fiction about universal human nature. O'Connor was also an exceptionally disciplined writer, establishing early on an inviolable and lifelong regimen of writing three pages a day every morning. Most of all, Flannery O'Connor was one of the most important Christian writers of the last century or more. 
She attended daily mass most of her adult life and once described herself as, quote, a 13th century Christian, a hermit nautilist. Indeed, she read broadly and deeply in Thomas Aquinas and other theologians. For her, the craft of her art, good stories well told, was an end in itself and a sign of God's grace. In addition, the content of her fiction was also her confession of faith. Quote, My subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory largely held by the devil. End quote. To those who complained about her grotesque and deeply flawed characters, she insisted that, quote, there's nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. And to the hard of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures, end quote. For the most part, Gooch connects the events of O'Connor's life with what he perceives as the autobiographical aspects of her fiction. He acknowledges but does not treat in depth O'Connor's cultural racism. She once, for example, refused a visit by James Baldwin. Nor does he explore the tense relationship with her overbearing mother who ran the farm as a savvy businesswoman. I also wish that Gooch had included some of O'Connor's extensive artwork among the 16 black and white photos. But at the end of the biography, I was left with a keen sense of awe and gratitude for a woman who, despite her significant suffering, stayed true to her call and to her God. Brad Gooch, Flannery. A Life of Flannery O'Connor. For a film this week, I review The Class from France, from the year 2008. In this movie, adapted from his autobiographical novel, Francois Bergadot plays himself as a French teacher in a middle school in a rough blue-collar Paris suburb. Real students and teachers, not professional actors, play the role in this film. Among other things, the film is a study of the ripple effects of immigration in France as seen through the lens of its public schools. The class has students from Morocco, the Caribbean, China, and more. In addition to their raging hormones, slang vocabulary, personalized dress codes, identification with sports teams, and overall disinterest in school, the students struggle with race, class, and religion. Then there are the poignant parent-teacher conferences and collegial faculty meetings. In a major part of the class drama, the sulk sass and sarcasm of a student from Mali named Suleiman provokes a class crisis. The class is not a documentary film, but it's so authentic that it feels like one. It was the official French entry for best foreign film and won the Palme d'Or at the 2008 Cannes Film Festival. In French with English subtitles. The Class, from 2008.
And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a prayer by St. Brendan the Voyager. He lived from 484 to 577. He was an Irish monk. This is simply called the Journey Prayer. God bless to me this day, God bless to me this night. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. God bless the pathway on which I go. God bless the earth that's beneath my soul. Bless, O God, and give to me thy love. O God of gods, bless my rest and my repose. Bless, O God, and give to me thy love. And bless, O God of gods, my repose. The Journey Prayer, St. Brendan the Voyager, an Irish monk from the 6th century. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May the 3rd, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.